0: John chapter 9 tonight, uh, uh, just kind of way, by way of introduction, uh, I'm always fascinated at the providence of God, how uh, he works things out, uh, even sicknesses and holidays. Uh, I've been I've been really struggling with, with John chapter 9 uh, all throughout the holiday season, ever since we started and started the Advent messages, and then there's a lot of fill-in uh, things that we're doing, and then New Year's message. And I... I was all dreading all that time coming back to John because I'm struggling uh, with John chapter 9. Uh, and, uh, and I think you'll see why. Uh, but through all of those things, I've had to meditate on what does he mean? Let me just give you a heads up. What, what I'm struggling with is why, when Jesus has the power to simply say, see, why, why? does he use the method that he uses? Why is he spitting in the dust and making clay and anointing eyes and then sending him away? Uh, And that's just been a real battle, uh, trying to understand why did he do that? you back away from fifty thousand feet you look at the context and that helps and then you zero in and you get real minute in your in your observations and then you get lost again and then you back back off and say wait a minute I'm losing the point here Uh, but but when it came together uh, was really uh, in some ways this morning uh, when it came together for me for in other words that I, that incident is not unrelated to the rest of the chapter. And that's where it connected because we tend to take this passage in isolation and then exclude it in our understanding from all of what follows, all the discourse, um, the, the controversy in regards to this blind man. So I want to read <clears throat> beginning in chapter 9. Uh, I'll probably break this down. Instead of reading the whole chapter, I'll read the section, then make some comments, and then read... Another section, but let's at least read to verse 12 together. Uh, remember now, Jesus has been discoursing in the temple area <coughs> with the religious leaders. And of course, in verse 58 of chapter 8, uh, Jesus finally says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Uh, well, they knew exactly what he meant. Uh, in fact, verse 59 says, Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Uh, of course, we don't have the chapter divisions in the Greek text, but the implication by the structure here is that he, <coughs> excuse me, is that he uh, he's continuing the thought here. In other words, he hid himself and went away from the temple. And as he passed by, as he was leaving the temple, as he was moving out of there, he comes by this man. He saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the words of God, the works of God, might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I, this is key now, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated is sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So I'll stop there and pick back up in verse 13. But I just want to make a couple of observations in the early chapters there. uh, (laughs) It really does center around him saying, I am the light of the world but it's interesting to me. And it says something about Christ. Uh, it says something about his, his focus or his understanding of his work, the work that he was to do. So he's coming from the temple. They've already picked up stones. They were going to attempt to stone him. So he gets, moves away from them. If anything, I would be thinking urgency, let's move on out of here. But in the process of exiting the temple, he comes by and he sees this man born blind. Uh, John, I think, gives us the information that that's the kind of man he sees. But Jesus sees him. And then there's a pause. We don't know how far away from the temple he had gotten, but chances are that he was very close because that's where he would generally station himself to be begging. And so in this haste to get away from those who want to stone him, Jesus sees the blind man and he stops. And he engages this blind man. Now, now it says a lot about the compassion of Christ, but in the context of this passage, it says more about Christ's focus on his mission, which is to do the works of God, which he goes on to say here. So he sees them. And, of course, the disciples, uh, I was really stunned when I was thinking about this, but his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And what struck me about that is they are apparently devoid uh, of compassion for the man. Uh, Jesus comes by in his haste to exit the temple after having them having actually taken up stones to kill him. Jesus sees him and pauses here and the disciples see this man as well. But their question is, why is he like that? they don't say anything they don't express any compassion or sorrow uh, maybe they <coughs> excuse me knew the man uh, that was born b- uh, blind from birth but they didn't express any sorrow or compassion or pity towards the man at all it jumped right to a theological question why is this man blind and then he gives two options here they they present two options uh, one thing that i think they overlooked that they're not seeing is that the answer to the first question, uh, who sinned? You could pause there and say everyone, but they don't think that way. They don't think there is sin having entered into the world and these are manifestations of the suffering that sin brings but so, and we're all under sin. So I should be feeling fortunate now that I'm not suffering a similar fate as this man for it is the root of sin. So when he says, who sinned? He doesn't even entertain the fact that he sinned or that they sinned or that all humanity sins. He directs it directly to this guy. So it tells me that it's awful easy to to define what it is that's caused affliction or suffering in someone else's life while forgetting that you are the same sort of sinner. And so the reality is, and Jesus is not saying here that this man has no sin or that his parents had no sin or that any of us had any sin, but that's what they're asking him. It was interesting as well, but you, did you ever think about this? He was born blind and the, so that's, they've identified that as the affliction. So how could that affliction be a sin uh, uh, on him as a result of his sin if he was born that way? Did he sin before he was born? Did he sin in the womb? Uh, That's that's an interesting question. I think sometimes we read past that and we think, well, he's talking about the sin that he's had in life. But he was born blind and that's the affliction they're identifying. They want to know, is that affliction on him a result of his sin? Well, they knew he was born blind. So how can it be a result of his sin? This is interesting. There Some views, but Pythagoras, there was a... Uh, the idea of the transmigration of souls, I think it was, I'm thinking five, 570 to 495, he lived in that period as a Greek philosopher. In fact, Aristotle and Plato were influenced a lot by his philosophy, but he had a philosophy of the transmigration of souls. So whenever you walked into this world, whenever you died, your soul would go in, a, in kind of a holding place and wait to inhabit another body or even an animal. And so they, they were thinking in terms of the, they were influenced, in fact, Judaism was influenced in some ways by that Pythagorean idea there. And some people believe that some of the Jews themselves are still holding on to this inclination of the reincarnation, the sense of the soul. And so they may have been even responding to that. Well, is this man afflicted from birth because he, he didn't achieve what he was in some other lifetime and now he's, his soul has transmigrated into this man and he was born blind, carrying the afflictions of the man whom tra- transmigrated into this body. That's what I think they mean. I mean, they know he was born. They know that we, we don't, we, we can't sin before we're even born. So it has to, I think it had to have influenced their thoughts. And then they give the second option is this sin or this affliction a result of the sin of his parents, or is he somehow the chastisement is his affliction, somehow the chastisement of the parents for their sins. And there is some precedent for that biblically for God visits the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who, who, who hate him or who don't follow God. But, but that's, that's not what's happening here. And that's what Jesus is essentially says to them. It is neither of those things. It is neither that this man sinned, whether whether they were thinking before in some other life or even in his own life. The cause of this affliction is not directly connected to his his sinning or to the sinning of his parents. That is huge. Uh, I talked to somebody this past week who, who had the same mentality. Any affliction that came into their lives was was automatically, in their mind, directly connected to some sin. And see, I don't, know how, I don't know how you can say that conclusively with the book of Job in the Bible. Because there's an example of a man who was righteous by God's own testimony, who had no obvious flagrant sin in his life, but all sorts of affliction came on to him, not only his property, but his family, and finally his own body to the point of death. His own wife uh, encouraged him to curse God and end the suffering. As long as that book is in the Bible, you can't always make a direct connection between a specific sin and an affliction that comes as a result of it. Now, are there afflictions that come into our lives as a consequence of sins? Absolutely. Is there, is there does God use sometimes affliction to, to bring uh, discipline and severity into the life of the, his people? Absolutely. But Jesus is saying in this instance, it is not the case. It is neither that this man sinned or that his parents sinned. His affliction is not directly related to his sin or the sin of his parents. There's another purpose for his affliction. And that's what's stunning about this passage. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's it. Now, does that mean that that suffering in general and affliction in the world does not find its ultimate root in sin? No, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, suffering in general is rooted in the curse having come upon the world in our fall into sin. So the sickness itself is rooted in the sinfulness that encroached into the world. But the application of that curse (laughs) in this sense is under the providential hand of God Almighty to work out his purposes for his own glory and even for the good, as we see, of this blind man. So be careful, is my exhortation, in looking around you and seeing the sufferings of others and immediately attributing that suffering to some sin in their lives or to some generational sin. It may be so, but there ought to be some real humility in us because we need this pause where the disciples didn't pause when we say, who sinned? And remember that the answer is, I sinned. I sinned. And if all affliction is a direct result of sin, I should be afflicted. Now, with with whatever the Lord might bring upon me. So be careful about drawing the direct connection between an individual sin and the affliction that they bear. There may be that. But I I believe that at the very least, we ought to be extremely humbled and extremely gracious and extremely merciful in making that conclusion. Now, I say that to say that in my own life, if there is affliction that comes to me, I do ask. I do say, Lord, is this your hand? Is this your Is this your attention getter for me? Am I wavering? Am I drifting in some way in my spiritual devotion to Christ? Am I I entertaining worldliness? Have you brought these things into my life to make me feel my weakness so that I might once again turn to you? I think that's a healthy way to look at our afflictions. But don't conclude in that examination that you are afflicted because you sinned in some way. Me, Don't make a direct connection to that. But certainly yield to the Lord because he may be showing you that. He may be showing you that as well. There are many who sin all their lives and they seem to have little affliction in this world. And then there are those who seem to have come into the world under this affliction. And they live all of their lives humbled under God's hands and dependent upon the Lord. And so there is a that to be considered. Now, his answer there, this is where it picks up for me and where it really came together for me. But he says, on the, on the heels of this, he's this way so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, he's speaking now about the works that are about to be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as, as, as it is. As it is day, night is coming when no one can work. I think, I think that passage is because there may have been a feeling of urgency among the disciples. Why are we lingering here? They just tried to stone you. We need to get you out of here. So there may have even been a push to, to get Jesus to, to just acknowledge it, give them the information and let's move on because they're coming with the stones. But Jesus seems to check that by saying we must work the works of God while it is still light. For the time is coming when it will be night and they won't be able to work. So don't rush me away. This man has been stationed here and from his birth has been ordained to be displayed here for the works of God to be shown in him. And I'm not about to walk away from that. And so Jesus stops where he is. And he begins to minister to this gentleman. Verse 5, he says, while I am in the world. Now, be careful. Listen very carefully to this verse because we're going to hear it again. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 12, he says the same thing to the religious leaders. I am the light of the world. He who walks in darkness or he who walks in me will not walk in darkness, but will will have the light of life. Here again, he says... At, the, at just before he begins his working in this man, man, he says, I am in the world while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he begins the, the miracle as it were, or as John calls him, the sign in verse six. So he says here, and when he had said this, uh, I like it that John points that out to us. When he had said that, when he had said, I am the light of the world, then he began to do this. And he says he spits on the ground, which we assume is dusty. And then he takes his hand and he takes the saliva and the dust and works that into a a mud, essentially. And then he takes and rubs the mud over his eyelids. And see, here's where I struggled a long time with this passage and always have. Was Was there a miraculous medicinal property in the mud that brought about the healing? Why the mud? Jesus didn't have to make up a medicine. He could have just said, see, that's enough. (laughs) That's That's all it would have taken. And I'm thinking there are two things involved here. There is the spittle from the mouth of the Son of God, he who is the word of God. And then there is the dust, which is representative of the man, as it were, And so the two are combined here in this moment and he makes a clay and he rubs it over his eyes. He essentially, you can't see through clay. He essentially makes him blinder. He's already blind, but then he takes something and mixes it up and makes a mud and smears the mud on his eyes. And that's not, that doesn't heal him. There's no medicinal properties in that. In fact, I don't think the mud has anything to do with his healing. I think what has to do with his healing is the command, go wash. And the obedience to the command. I think had he not gone, he would have sat there with the mud caked on his eyes and would have been doubly blind for the rest of his days. So so that's what was the struggle for me. Because I'm trying to figure out why the mud and why the saliva. Why not just heal him? Why, why send him away? I even thought about this, and maybe you did. And, but when he sent him away, he's still blind. How did he get there? Feel his way? He's got mud on his eyes. He can't see. Did someone help him? We're not even told that they assisted him. Jesus simply says, go and to the pool of Siloam and wash. And he does. Now, the reason I say that is that is going to be key to the dialogue that ensues later on. Because I think Jesus says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And immediately, he spits in the dirt, makes a clay, covers his eyes, as it were, doubly blinds him, and then commands him in his double blindness, go wash. And the man goes. And we learn that when he goes... (coughs) Away and wash that he came back seeing. So, so in the obedience to the command to go and wash, the healing happens when he washes. When the obedience is complete there, then the sight returns and it says he comes back seeing. Uh, you know what struck me about this? Uh, there are false prophets in our day who would mimic the methodology here. They would make up some potion. They would, they would make up some holy water or get some water somewhere and call a blessing on it and send it out to you and promise you that you'll be healed and all, and all these things if you'll send some money. And there were people that will exploit the methodology here and, and never see the glory of God manifest here. And that's what we're about to see. His neighbors obviously were stunned. They seen him all his life. Uh, the assumption here is that he's a grown man at this point, but from birth he had been blind. And so therefore the neighbors in verse 8 and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Can it be? Nobody, nobody, he's been blind all of his life from birth. Clearly, they've not been able to find a doctor to heal that all of his days. But now he's come back and he's seeing, can this really be him? Others were saying, verse 9, others were saying it is him. They were excited. Others were skeptical, but they were excited it is he. But still others were saying, no, it can't be. This looks like him. Maybe it's another beggar. Maybe it's someone else who was blind. Can't be him because this man born blind and blind all these years cannot possibly be seeing out of nowhere. So you got the skeptics there and the one group in the middle that says it is him. I I don't know how it happened and I can't explain it, but that's him. They're at least honest enough to recognize that. And so they all, implication verse 9, they were all saying to him, how then were your eyes open? How did this happen? And he answered the man who is called Jesus. Remember, he never saw him. The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and I washed and I received sight. That's as simple as that. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I I don't know. Uh, I, I was thinking kind of humorously here uh, as if he just said, I don't know. I was blind when he told me that. <laughs> I don't know where he went. I just made my way to Siloam and went down into the pool. When I came up, I was seeing. Oh, how I wish I even knew what he looked like so I could go find him. But I've never seen the man. I just heard the man's voice. Oh, my goodness. And that's, that, moves, that makes me charismatic. Uh, I didn't see him. I heard him. I I heard the word. That's where I think the spittle comes in. The word of God spoken to men. I I don't want to give it away, but I'll get to this in a moment. But he says here, they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So let's read verse 13. Uh, Well, I'm tempted to do like a running commentary, but let's read 13 and beyond for a little ways. They brought to the Pharisees. These people who were all asking him how did this happen and who did this, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see." When I, when I read this, it's almost like he's getting impatient with people. I'm telling you people, I told you very clearly the first time. Now now the religious leaders want to know. And he's like, I, I told you. He put clay on my eyes. He said, wash. And I see. And therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God. That's, that's stunning. He put clay on my eyes, and washed and said, and said, go to the pool of Siloam. And I did, and now I see. But he's not from God. Well, I don't know where he's from, but I know one thing. I can see this man is not from God, they say, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And then there was a division among them. And so now we're going to get caught up in in Sabbath rules and the law in regards to what's happening. The miracle or the sign is getting buried all along the way. And this This one man knows exactly what happened. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? uh, I think there was an intimidating factor involved in that. No man, they've already said, this man is not from God. He violated the Sabbath. Now they're going to take all the religious authority weight and throw it on him and say, what do you say? Uh, There would be a real temptation to say, I say, what you said, I'm, I'm just a mean, uh, impoverished beggar at the gate. You are the religious authorities and the keepers of the law. You just said he's not from God. And now you're putting it on me and say, what do you say means, uh, impoverished beggar, bring your expertise to the floor. What do you say? So you can feel the temptation here. And he said, he is a prophet. It's the best I can figure out. I don't don't know who he is, but he clearly spoke a word, and I obeyed the word, and now I see. And and that sounds prophetic to me, so I say he's a prophet. Verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind. So he can't be a prophet. He's not from God because he did this on the Sabbath. So I don't think you were really blind. Boy, that would have been hard to prove in a court of law. Everybody who went to the temple saw him is even eventually they bring his parents in to testify of it. They didn't believe it of him that he had been blind and received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? Uh, You have to, you have to be a little frustrated with his parents and understanding at the same time because they really don't know how They don't disbelieve their son, but they weren't eyewitnesses of it. So their answer, I think because they fear the religious leaders a bit, is his parents answered and said to them, we know that he's our son and we know that he's born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. John tells us in verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That's a big deal. I mean, you are, if, you're, if you're excommunicated, you are cut off from the kingdom of God. You are, you are an outsider to the kingdom of God. Nobody wants to be excommunicated from the temple and from the synagogue. And that's the weight that's coming down on this man's parents. And they yield to that. They feel that. Ask him. He's of age. <laughs> he's, he's beyond our responsibility now. He's, a, he's an adult man and, and he makes his own decisions. Don't, don't risk my excommunication. So they ask him. And the same threat was upon him. Here I am blind. Think about this. Blind all my life. Begging all my life. Christ comes by. Anoints my eyes, sends me away to wash, and now I see only to be thrown out of the synagogue, cut off from the people of God. That's just stunning. I mean, look at the, you see the contrast here. He's been delivered from this blindness by a miraculous work of the very son of God. And for testifying of it, there's the threat of excommunicating him from the temple and from the synagogue and from essentially the people of God. There's a real dilemma happening here. uh, Verse 23. This is the reason his parents said he is of age. Ask him. So a second time. They called the man who had been born had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Uh, the contrast there, there's a larger picture here. We'll, we'll let you out from under the pressure if you'll just glorify, give glory to God for your sight. But Don't bring this man into it. We don't, he's a sinner. We, we reject him, but we're okay if you say God did that. I, when I read that, I couldn't help but think in our generation today, Uh, You can say about anything to anybody non-offensive and say, God bless you. You can even end your prayer, so help us God. But when you insert the name in the name of Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God and Savior of the world, amen. Boy, you make a bunch of people mad. Give glory to God. Leave this man out of it. Well, that's exactly the man that needs to be included in it. Verse 25 He then answers them whether, uh, uh, I was reading one commentary, but it's striking to me here, but he's talking about the growing boldness of this man. Uh, He starts out and then he shows a little bit of frustration like, don't you people believe me? I'm telling you what happened. But then he answered whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, (laughs) that though I was blind, now I see. That's my theological foundation, (laughs) if you will. You guys can debate the law, and, and you can have your academic uh, ivory towers and come to all the conclusions, but I, wa- I know this thing for certain. I was blind. This man came, anointed my eyes, and commanded me to go to Siloam and wash, and I did, and I see. Now, you can refute that Or you can debate that amongst your theology and in your doctrine, but these are the realities in his life. And that's exactly what he testifies to. Verse 26, so they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, verse 27, I told you already and you didn't listen. Now that's when it starts introducing what I'm saying Jesus it introduces to me the context for which I think Jesus cured the man, healed the man the way he did. I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? I do believe the man met that, meant that in a sarcastic way. Uh, And I think they took it that way. Uh, They did not like this at all. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know know where he's from. Then the man answers and says to them, well, here is an amazing thing. (laughs) I love this. Here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, has it never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This man had learned a lot of theology in a very short time, didn't he? Verse 34, they answered him and said to him, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us. So they put him out. Excommunicated, born blind, begged at the gate all of your life, finally delivered from your blindness to rejoice and to praise God. And you're cut off from the very place to where you were, would go and assemble to offer up that very praise. What a dilemma this man has. Verse 35, Jesus had heard that they put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? So far, he's just professed that he's a prophet. He doesn't know him. And I think it's the the early faith drawing him here. But he says, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? He was ready to believe. Ready to believe. In contrast to those who would not listen. They don't want to believe. They have a vested interest in not believing. He wanted to believe. Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Then Jesus puts a capstone on this, and he says, for judgment, I am coming to this world, so that those, here it is, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind that's that's the reason for the mud that's what I think he was illustrating ahead of time the word of God spoken the light shining into this world gives light to some and blindness to others The truth and the word of God double blinds them. They rejected him in their blindness, claiming I can see, resting in their own wisdom and their own intellect. And when the light shone to to relieve their blindness, they rejected the light and double blinded themselves. They were blind from birth and they put mud over their eyes. Now they're double blind. And the only way they'll ever see is in obedience to Christ who sends them to wash in Siloam. That's what the man did. That's what he did. His, you see in their reactions and in Jesus dealing with this man, the, the, the responses from light shining into the world. What did John, John himself has already said in chapter three, "This is the judgment that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. And so they push the light away and in the pushing away of the light, which would bring sight, you make yourself doubly blind. That's what he means here when he says to them, I have come. It is for judgment that I have come into the world so that those who are blind, who recognize that they are blind, may see because they want to see. But But those who see and resting themselves and trust in their vision and their wisdom and their insight, they in their pride will reject the light and as a result, they will become blind. Those who see will become blind. Jesus does it in both directions. And here's what's key. Are you blind? Were you blind? I can't describe it any better way than the scriptures does in my own personal experience with Jesus Christ. I was blind. And I knew it. Through His Spirit, He had brought me to the place that I am groping in the dark and everything I grab hold of and pull near enough to see it is, fell, fills away in my hand like sand. It just filters out and I, there's nothing to grasp. And I'm realizing more and more that I can't see and I can't. I'm groping in the darkness and I don't know what I'm holding on to. And then when Jesus comes into my life through the Spirit, as the light then I want the light I I hear people getting these arguments about free will and things like that all the time and I think to myself I don't I don't I can't experience I I don't have any experience there I mean Jesus didn't manifest himself to me and I say well let me think about this for a few days by the time he manifests himself to me he's all I wanted (laughs) I'm going to take off running tonight be Pentecostal with he, that's all I wanted. I, I desired him by the time he had worked by the spirit to bring me to this place to where I realize just how blind I am and I long to see just like this man sitting here. And Jesus anoints his eyes with the mud and makes him doubly blind, I think, as a message to those he's about to speak to. But the command that healed him was, you go wash. And he went away in obedience to this voice that he heard that he couldn't even see. And the the result of his obedience in that point was faith brought him full circle and he received the sight that he so longed for. But then when Jesus turns the same truth and he testifies of the same truth to those who say, I can see They get doubly blind. They get hardened to it. And they end up rejecting the very light that shines in the world. And they embrace their darkness. Why? Because their deeds are evil. So that's the question to you and I. When Jesus came to you, were you the beggar begging at the gate as a blind man from birth, never having seen, longing to see the light? And if you were there and Jesus comes to you, you wanted him. You wanted the light. Or were you the religious Pharisee who grew up with the law and grew up in the church and you knew all the doctrines and you had everything all figured out. And when the true light comes, it's offensive to you because it makes you feel as though all of your investments are worthless. And they are. And, but you don't want to admit that. And what do you do? You push the light away, and in doing so, you and I, even today, will become doubly blind. We're already blind, just like the man at the gate. But in our pride, we don't even acknowledge our blindness, and we actually claim that our blindness is sight, and therefore we reject the true light, and in doing so, we become doubly blind. The reality is, is the Pharisees walked away in the position of the beggar to begin with, and the beggar walked away as a man who could see. A man who had seen the light. And to me, that's what's so powerful about this passage. Jesus says to them, those are the Pharisees who were with him. They heard these things and said to him, they knew, I think they got his drift here. They said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. In other words, if you were really blind, like him, like this beggar, if you were really blind, I don't mean physically blind, but if you were really blind or aware or sensitive to your blindness, there'd be no sin in that because the light is here and you'd see. But because you say we see, your sin remains because you're rejecting the light. That's the difference. And, And to me, at the very least, even for Christians, that ought to produce in you and I, a humility that we've never known before. Because I think it's easy even in the Christian life to get to this certain place in our Christian understanding and our understanding of doctrines that we shift away and we become reliant or resting upon our grasp of the doctrines of the truth. They are critical to understand as a part of our sanctification. But at the end of the day, it is Jesus, the light of the world, that removes the blindness. They had their doctrine straight They had the the law down pat. They knew it upside down and inside and out. They had their religious ducks all in a row. And it produced in them a pridefulness that, that was resting in their own understanding. And Jesus said, because of that pride, you say, we see. But you're as blind as he is. And the difference between you and him is that he knows he's blind and you don't. And the difference is that now he sees and you, ne- and you still don't see. In fact, you're doubly blind now. You're twice as far from seeing as you were before you encountered the light. And that's the real danger for people. I didn't realize this when I said as a lost person in a church, uh, because someone made me. But the more I'm exposed to the light of the truth of God's word, it has two potentials in me. It, it either will illuminate how blind I am Or or it will cause double blindness in me because I will see the light just enough to know I don't like the light and reject the light. And in doing so, I double blind, double blind, double blind. And from my own personal testimony, by the time I was 29, I had double blinded myself so many times that I had hardened myself to even be able to see the light. And only, only the purchase of Christ, the mercy purchased by Christ on the cross could overcome that hardness to open my eyes to see the light. That's exactly what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4. The God who said in the beginning, let the light shine is the same God has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We see him as light because the same God that called light into existence has shown him to be light in our hearts. And that's the only reason. That's the only reason. Just a wonderful Encouraging passage of scripture and a sobering passage of scripture as well because as you look around in the world if you tie this into Romans 1 in the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness as a result of that God gives them over and I think that's the stage we're in in this world I mean it gets more bizarre every month I heard today they're wanting to ban gas stoves I mean that's I mean, just what I, I, I got a gas water heater I love it I don't want to go back to electric, even electric heat. We have gas heat. We had electric heat pump one time. We froze to death. We got gas heat now, natural gas. We stay warm and toasty. And I said, it's just like they just keep doubling down. It gets weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder. It seems like every month or every year. And it's just, I mean, I'm at the point now where I'm not going to be surprised what they, pro, pro uh, you know, Suggest or propose that we adopt in this world and the reason I think that is is because what could be known of God They wouldn't acknowledge as God and they suppress the truth that was evident around them and in their unrighteousness They worship the creation more than the Creator and as a result of that God gives them over to the degrading passions of their heart and they get double blind double blind double blind double blind And they keep going down and down and down and the light is farther and farther away from them and the dark Darkness grows and grows and grows, and I'm telling you, we're living in a dark world—a dark world. And those in that darkness do not want the light. And the bo- and the darker it gets, the more offensive the light will be. And the and that's where I think persecution starts heating up. And we we'll, we we who see the light will have to be preparing ourselves for that someday, if not this generation, the next. And young young people hear me. Uh, Your generation is under a greater threat of it than mine. I I may be on out of here and with the Lord but you've got some growing to do Uh, and you may live in a dark world and you may be the only glimmers of light in that world or Christ dwelling in you. So I encourage you to uh, submit to your parents and listen to them and be discipled by them and let them equip you to stand in your generation. Amen. Stand with me. Thank you for being here tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the light of Christ who is shown by your spirit into our hearts. Lord, as I was studying this passage these past months, uh, you were sanctifying me. Uh, Lord, you were doing things in me even with my cold, uh, I believe, and even with the timing of the holiday seasons and the events and even to the water leaks. Father, all these were instrumental in you teaching me, and I thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that everyone in this sanctuary will understand that the circumstances of their lives are not just happen-chance and falling out with some random way, but that there is a God who loves them, a God who is revealing to them the glory of Christ moment by moment, and that if they will be and we will be instructed by your wisdom and by your word and spirit in the midst of these circumstances, we might come to see you. Lord, help us as we live in this dark world. We want to be light. Father, we want to reflect the light of Christ. So help us to be found faithful. And Lord, that begins in our own individual personal lives. Lord, help us to be mindful to examine ourselves, not just what we're doing, but, Father, why it is that we're doing and what, what benefit we hope to gain from doing it. Is it self-exaltation or is it that Christ might be magnified? Is it the respect of others or is it that others might respect Christ? Father, there are a million corruptions remaining in this old man. And I know from experience that he will try to employ them in every, every avenue of my life and devotion to you. So, Father, I know it's true in the lives of those in this room as well, so help us. Lord, we thank you for the cross for the sacrifice of Christ, for the mercy purchased for us there, that that help might be true and sure. And so we yield to you tonight. Thank you for your grace in Jesus' name.